You didn't think I'd... Yeah. You didn't think I'd think that way. That's it. Bring it up big there, Herb. How do you like my cowboy shirt here? Well, they wouldn't like this... Uh, they wouldn't like this over at Barney's, would they? <laughs> yeah. Dear Shepherd, life is a magazine. Remember the other day we were trying to find people's definition of life. You don't mind if we do a uh, salute to our uh, fellow English-speaking country tonight. I mean, you know, seriously here. I think once in a while we have to take cognizant of uh, Britain. By the way, for those of you who wonder why we do this, after all, tit for tat, <laughs> if I can use a phrase like that, with the kids still up. However, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Herb. <laughs> uh, you can't go, listen, you go over to England, and you're in England 20 minutes, and you're aware of the fact that at least three-quarters of the writers in England and the newspapers are writing about America. You know, how rotten it is, you know, you know tinsel values, et cetera, et cetera, ad infinitum. And, uh... So I say tit for tat, and I think it's about time that we took uh, recognition of the nuttiness of our of our fellow uh, our fellow English-speaking country out there. Hello, England. How are you? Jeez, I got it. It's been a long time, hasn't it? Since Richard Lionhearted. Please, would you bring that on? Let's salute old Richard there. The Lionhearted. My God Almighty, look at him there. Now, the British Broadcasting Corporation once again salutes British spirit everywhere, wherever it may exist. My God, there will always be an ignorant. I just like to hear this. It just goes, oh, I'd love to direct this. Wouldn't you love to see you conducting this? Good. Hello, one, two, three. Hey, uh, uh, you reset that. I, I just like the sound of that. It's good, you know, in the middle of the week. It'll open up the old uh, eyeballs there. Hey, uh, the, how many of you ever ever saw a movie? You ever see a movie with Rex uh, Harrison in it? Where Rex Harrison was the, uh, was a conductor of a symphony orchestra. A very famous conductor. He's a fantastically famous conductor. In this movie, if you ever get a chance to see it, it's one of the great comic performances I've ever seen, seriously, in a movie. And he really, <laughs> when I heard this, I, I uh, had to think of uh, Harrison, you know, conducting this tremendous symphony. And uh, they, I could see him the way he does it. But uh, the, the story, yeah, I'm not going to bother you with the story, but the story involves this fantastically 
important conductor. I mean, a really important conductor. You know, like somebody like, uh, oh, uh, Sir Thomas Beecham or some some elegant British con- conductor who is world famous. And he is married to this fantastic chick. And the chick, in this case, being uh, Linda Darnell, and a, a most unlikely pairing. But she was great in this because of that unlikely quality. And there he was, married to this fantastic chick. And her brother-in-law was Rudy Valley. I don't want to tell you the whole story, but the brother-in-law was Rudy Valley. And there's a scene when this elegant conductor comes into this restaurant. I mean, he's really elegant. I mean, you know, the kind that, that changes his shirt between every movement of a symphony. And, and uh, he has big, wavy hair. And all the women are fantastically in love with him. You know, half the women who go to see Lenny Bernstein are madly in love with him. This is not to, you know, oh, they wish their husband could be like that. Sit a little short, fat slob that makes vests, you know. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, he, he was, you know, really elegant. He goes into this restaurant in this scene, and uh, I don't recall what the scene was about, but he absolutely loathed his brother-in-law, who was uh, Rudy Valley. And you know Rudy Valley. Rudy Valley looked totally decadent in this. He was always wearing a Homburg hat, and he was very wealthy, but completely decadent. And the both of them hated each other. And there was a scene where... Uh, he came into this restaurant, and there was Rudy Valley sitting in this elegant restaurant. And for some reason or other, Rudy Valley had to open up his pocketbook. I shouldn't tell you the gag, but he opened his pocketbook. And as he opened his pocketbook, he takes out this, this, uh, he had a, you know, there are certain kinds of people who carry their money in purses. You ever seen that type? Have you ever seen the type of guy, Herb, that carries his money in a purse? No, I'm, I'm talking about the little kind that you open up at the top. And you reach in and you get quarters out of it. You know that kind of a purse? Have you ever seen guys that carried their money that way? You haven't? Uh, oh, come on. Are you giving me the business? No, really, seriously. Are you really? Old, uh, old stodgy gentlemen always do that. How many times have you stood in a, in a line at, at Christidis behind some old coot who's going through one of these things looking for a quarter? You mean you have, that's never happened to you? Can't believe it. My God, what sheltered lives you guys live. Now, when you think of purse, I suppose you think of a lady's purse. I'm talking about a, a coin purse. You know, kind of a clip on the top. Well, he had one of those. See, that's I'm beginning to believe that much of humor is lost in the movies by implying, by by actually believing that your audience has observed the world around them. <laughs> you would have missed that that whole because that says so much about a person's character when he has carries his money in a purse and he takes it out and he opens it up. And he reaches in for a quarter, you know. Uh, and if you didn't, if you've never seen that in your life, then of course you wouldn't see the humor in it. You just think he's got a funny thing. He keeps his money in. And uh, of course, humor—that's the problem with humor. It's, it, it is based on knowledge. It really is. It's based on, on on shared knowledge. And if the other person doesn't have any knowledge of the thing, you know, forget it. You might as well whistle Dixie out of your ears. You know, you might as well go around stuffing ducks. But uh, nevertheless. Uh, he, he opened this thing up, and as he opened it up, there was a faint creak. That's all. His purse creaked when he opened it. <laughs> Which, no, you could just hear it on the soundtrack. That's all. Very faintly. I thought, geez. And there was a scene in that movie with a tape, with a, with a recording machine that was one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen ever played with a piece of technical equipment. Now, that'll wake up all you out there to watch for it. 
because, you know, very rarely do people see the humor in machines. That's not an American humor, because we believe in machines. We really do, you know. Uh, we, we don't think machines are funny. There's only two ways to look at machines if you're an American. One, uh, they're a danger. They're going to completely IBMize my life, and they're a terrible danger, and I hate machines. Which means, of course, you quetch a lot about machines. Then there's the other view, which is to love machines. There's hardly any in between. You know, there's some people who just love machines around them. Well, the British have a sense of humor about machines. Uh, you've probably seen Searle's fantastic cartoons of uh, great trains and that. Uh, you know, just the uh, old airplanes and stuff where he sees the humor in a machine. Well, this scene that Rex Harrison played with the machine went out for about ten minutes of him trying to get this thing to record his voice. Fantastically funny, really. I, I, I don't want to describe it to you because it, it just was a, one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie, man versus machine. Much funnier than, say, uh, uh, Modern Times with uh, Chaplin, which is always considered a great movie about man versus machine. But this, this little incident of this guy totally incapable of getting this thing to work. And the whole point of it was, of course, that he was going to murder his wife. And <laughs> I will say no more. But uh, the English the English do have a sense of humor about machines. How many of you ever saw a movie when the opening scenes of... Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of that Rex uh, Harrison movie. Unfaithfully Yours. Unfaithfully Yours. If you ever see that listed in, uh, in uh, you know, late, late movies, stay up, don't worry about being late the next day for work, Stay up. It's worth seeing. You know, it's worth seeing because it. And see it from the beginning. Don't you know? Don't see the last half of uh, Dick Cavett and then tune in and figure out why the hell it isn't funny. You know, please, because it, it develops. This thing develops into a maniacal movie, and it all takes place during a concert, one concert, and as he conducts each movement of the concert, or each piece that he's playing, he's playing some Rachmaninoff and some Beethoven, and he plays a. Uh, he plays a. Uh, Wall Street, a couple, a couple of regular standard uh, numbers, and he's, he's fantastic. It looks like it's an Alfred Hall or something, an enormous concert. And each piece of music that he plays inspires him as he's conducting the orchestra. It inspires him to murder his wife another way. Different techniques. <laughs> and the more violent the movie gets, the more violent his ideas and his fantasies about murdering Linda Darnell become. And as he raises his arms, you see, to get ready for the downbeat, and it, you can see with his crisp new white shirt on, the, the camera picks up 2,000 elegant concert goers all dressed in full dress, and he looks out over the orchestra. It's a 120-piece magnificent uh, BBC orchestra, and he raises his baton, and he gives him the downbeat. And his arms wave back and forth. And you see the scene fading out slowly. And behind him, the music is playing. And you see him walking down a long corridor towards their apartment after the concert. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's a great movie. Hey, listen, before we go any further with that, let's do a thing here for Kasha. Hey, I had some Kasha the other day. It is good, really. Uh, if, if you like uh, 
if you like grain type things, and uh, it's, it's if you like rice, if you like rice, you'll like kasha better. In fact, and uh, we have a note here on kasha. It's Wolf's kasha, W O L F F S. That's two F's. Wolf's kasha, and kasha is spelled with a K. Kasha, which is made from healthful, tasty, golden brown buckwheat groats. And we pointed out that what a groat is is a small bottom feeding fish, which is found in brackish water. They find a lot of them in this area around uh, the Guanas Canal. However, they don't. These are all imported buckwheat groats, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, tasty golden brown buckwheat groats. And the copy says, "Are you following me?" Well, then, as Thoreau would prefer, I'll simplify. Simplify. <laughs> this is. Uh, a sales pitch for Wolf's Kasha. This is a wireless copy. It says, Kasha is an incredible, functional, tasteful, helpful, inexpensive, and fun food that is that not enough people know about. It is well known to what we euphemistically call the old world. It's been a staple in Eastern Europe for centuries. And you know how good they are on staples there in Eastern Europe. They invented the staple machine, by the way, just outside of Kiev. So, uh, for a serving of Wolf's Kasha, try it a couple of times and you'll be hooked. Wolf's Kasha, the world's oldest unknown health food. If you'd like a recipe book on Kasha, just send me a line here. My name is Al McCann. Send me a line here at WOR, and I'll send you Wolf's new Kasha cookbook. And those good folk at the New Jersey Egg Council will be glad to hear from you. Let's see. Uh, thank you very much. This is WOR New York. Hi, George. Certainly is. And uh, I, I, I'm sorry I got off the track here about England. But I would like to start out again before we do the English thing by hitting you with another commercial. Just laying it on you easy. Coming through. Oh, uh, yeah. Chrysler's. Right. And Plymouth for 72. They're coming through again. You can Cricket. count on Duster. Yeah. Scamp. Satellite. Fury. Chrysler. That's a mad one. Imperial. All built to last and beautiful, too. The kinds of cars America wants today. Now at America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. See America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. Your Chrysler Plymouth dealers of New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County. Act now while the price freeze is still on. Yeah, yeah, very good. That was excellent. That was very nice. Uh, let's see. Uh, we've done Kasha. We've got that Chrysler done. Let's see. Oh, hey, listen. I'm going to read some excerpts of uh, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories on uh, WNYC. That's the, you know, the city station here, November 18th at 11 p.m. If you happen around down at that end of the dot, that's FM, of course. WNYC FM, the 18th, 11 o'clock. The cheating. Put me on there, class Z time. I come right after stock market report and you and your police. Hey, listen, uh, <laughs> I wanted to mention the here about England here. I don't know whether you saw the piece, but we would like to salute nuttiness in England tonight. I mean, you know. If we're nutty, so are the English in their own way. London. There was an armed rebellion recently in southwest London. This came through a couple of weeks ago. Several hundred youths and men, all members of a society called the Sealed Knot. Did you ever hear that outfit? 
Well, it's it's getting quite a name in England. The sealed knot, and armed with every sort of weapon from guns to swords, clashed on Clapham Common. It was a rumble between Britain's newest group of revolutionaries, who called themselves the Roundheads, and a reactionary monarchist group called the Cavaliers. The Cavaliers founded. Uh, the Cavaliers' founder and leader is a tough, much-decorated ex-commando officer, Brigadier Peter Young. Joining the Cavaliers, he claims, quote, and we quote here, enables people to escape from their bloody dull lives. It is a rebellion against the times we live in. Being England, it's not a real rebellion. It's all taken as a game. But it's taken very seriously by its fast-growing band of players. The sealed knot began by chance in 1968, when Young staged an exhibition battle to publicize a book he had written on the English Civil War. That was Cromwell's days. The participants enjoyed it so much, they decided to form a permanent society dedicated to reenacting 17th century battles, whenever possible, at the original site. The most recent battle was the Battle of Brentford and Turnham Green. That sounds like a real battle, the Battle of Brentford and Turnham Green which occurred in 1642. They all began in 1968 as cavaliers, marching about and heaving cannon around as they did at the original battles. Then they realized they didn't have any opposition. So the Roundhead faction was formed. The two sides, flamboyant royalists and Dewar Cromwellians, do not mix much socially off the battlefield. This is interesting. There is slowly beginning to develop a rancor between these two sides, which originally started as fun. Do you hear what I said? They don't drink in anything together. Now, of course, that was the original battle, you know. You, you, if you know anything about Cromwell, <laughs> it was it was the soreheads versus the swingers, really. It's what that battle was all about. You know, the Cromwellians were very, very moral and very dour. And uh, the guys they fought, you know, sat around and threw uh, hog bones over their shoulder and yelled and hollered and pinched women, you know. Yeah, that's the whole point, the Cavaliers versus the Roundheads. Well, the, the current ones are, are, are split right down the middle. The Cavaliers uh, hang around one bunch of joints, and the Roundheads hang around their own. And it isn't a cheap business, like juicing. And by the way, that is the correct pronunciation, as opposed to jousting, which most people call it. But like juicing, which is winning an enormous number of converts, too, sealed knotters pay up to $1,500 for their uniforms. And their arms, breast and back plates, for example, cost about 150 bucks a pair. Even a cheap sword costs fifteen dollars. Now remember, these are not—they're all—it's a new industry now, making armor and stuff for guys who want to go out and you know swat at each other with maces and stuff. Although they take all sorts of precaution, battling is a rough old game. One senior officer has broken four ribs, his nose twice, suffered two concussions and a fractured knee this season alone. <laughs> so if you think pro football is tough, man, listen, uh, can you imagine? Uh, these guys really go out and do it. I mean, they really battle each other. So occasionally someone gets over-enthusiastic and, uh, and gets put in a set of authentic stocks. You know what is it? Stocks. You know, when a guy sits there with his head through the board and they clamp his arms in there, and he stays there all day long, I mean, if he gets too bad. Recruits begin as troopers, musketeers or pikemen and have to earn their promotion in battle 
you can get yourself all the way up, you know, to become Richard Lionhearted if you, you know, bang enough heads. So there is even a regiment of women on each side, the monstrous, monstrous regiment of women in the royalist camp and the maids of chastity on the roundhead side. Sealed knotters look so dashing in their uniforms, especially the royalists, that their fashions are bound to catch on. This is a late, though, news note from the London Express. Now, of course, the roundheads dress in what uh, is the equivalent of sackcloth and ashes. You know, they're very, very, uh, they, they were like, you know, they were like uh, Puritans. They, they've returned to morality, and they they dress peasant clothes. So, uh, I mean, uh, I could just imagine George Plimpton being a cavalier. He'd love it. Uh, going out and getting his head bashed in by a mace. Or, uh, you know, one of those battle axes. But, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a growing thing all over the world. Uh, did you, you know, reenacting battles is getting to be a, a crazy nuttiness. I have, you know, I've never been involved, but I've seen a couple of these things. And uh, you know that every year there's a group, or is it every three or four years, but periodically a group of people dressed as uh, Confederates and another group dressed as uh, Northern Yankees uh, reenact various battles of the Civil War. I mean, complete even to cannons and, and, uh, and round ball muskets and the whole... Well, I don't think they use round ball muskets in the Civil War. That was after that. Round ball was the revolutionary. These, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, they, they reenact this whole scene, and these guys get all involved in it. You know, they get to be real, real, uh, uh, real students of the battle that they're involved in. And the guys play various uh, roles. And as a matter of fact, uh, some of them are even so so strange uh, as to as to live their lives practically the way the guy that they portray in the battles apparently lived his. You know, they eat stuff like uh, uh, molasses and uh, uh, you know molasses and fried corn, and they drink. Do uh, uh, you ever hear of gunpowder whiskey? They drink. <laughs> I won't even tell you about that. You know what gunpowder whiskey is? That's whiskey mixed with gunpowder. At one time, that was considered to be a very masculine drink. Although you had to stay away from matches for a couple of weeks. I mean, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> Blow your kidneys right out your backside. But nevertheless, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that, that this, is, uh, this is the way it's going. Now, it gets even further further afield from that. You know, every battle, every... every uh, Major war in the past, and uh, you know that we have. There's been plenty in history. Has a group of people who are somehow hung on that war, and they they uh, of course there's the scholars and then there's the reenactors. Now you of course know in this area that every year, uh, just about Christmas time, isn't it roughly Christmas time or just before that? There's a whole group of guys set out to cross the Delaware. Correct. And uh, one of my old friends is the leader of that bunch of cuckoo birds. Yeah, Sinjin Terrell, the guy that uh, runs the, uh, you know, the the theater out there in Lambertville, you know, the music circus. And every year these guys get in these rowboats, you know, they row across and surprise the Hessians. You know, a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of malcontented, uh, uh, what do they call them, mercenaries over there. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I guess they have Hessians. I don't know. I, I don't know whether they have Hessians that, you know, are sleeping around the fire, sleeping off the rum. And they come in and surprise them. But nevertheless, this is a this is a big deal. Have you heard about the one now? I'll even go further than this. That recently, now they've become curiously nostalgic. It's already beginning to set in. Now the word nostalgia bothers me. I, 
it, uh, this is a <laughs> bad scene, I think. And uh, I, I, anybody who, who spends his time uh, living in a, in a time other than his own is really in trouble. I, I think bad trouble. It's like, uh, who was it? Uh, Miniver Cheevy. You know who Miniver Cheevy was? You do. Okay. You remember, you used to have that talk show over on Channel 5. You remember? Skitch Henderson was on the, you know, had the band. But uh, Miniver Cheevy ruled the day. <laughs> and uh, he was always seeing himself in chain mail. And uh, he, he was, you know, the typical, arch-typical character of that type. Now, uh... Even World War II, as recent as World War II, there, there, uh, there, there are nostalgic camps being formed. And uh, you know that they have various tours now. This is the way it begins, tours. Almost all these things start as tours. Used to be, you know, people would just, were content to tour the battlefields of the Civil War. And then gradually, uh, millimeter by millimeter, it begins to change, and one day a guy shows up for the tour wearing the uh, uniform of a uh, Confederate major. And the next year, somebody shows up wearing the uniform of a rifleman in the 7th Michigan Rifles. And, <laughs> and by God, the next thing you know, they're out there doing Antietam, or, or uh, they're doing Bull Run all over again. And uh, this is the way it starts. Well, you know that there are tours now that uh, actually start every year, uh, you, if you get the... If you get the proper uh, literature, you can you can go on one of these tours. And if you took part personally, let's say, in, uh, well, let's say D-Day, uh, the Battle of uh, Normandy, we'll say, uh, Omaha Beach, well, they have tours now that, that guys that were there can come back and, and, and walk around and point out where Fred got his head blown off. And over there is the place where, you know, <laughs> that's a fact. It's, it's, it sounds grisly and eerie, but, uh, but uh, they do it, see, and they walk around and they... They uh, they send back postcards and and uh, take pictures of themselves standing in front of a German bunker which is still there or a, or a concrete gun emplacement or something like that. You know, a lot of that stuff is still there, see, and it's being preserved now as a as a as a kind of I uh, I suppose uh, his well, it's historical. That's true. It uh, preserves history, and uh, now they're beginning tours of the South Pacific, where guys can go to uh, let's say. Uh, Tinian or uh, Iwu or, uh, you know, fun places like uh, Anywe Talk, where, <laughs> you know, and they can, they can actually start, and it'll start out, what, I think it'll start out, you know, as tours, and the next thing you know, some guy's going to go over there, and he's going to have his old marine suit on, and uh, he's going to put it on for old time's sake, if he can get it on, and uh, he's going to pull up, they're going to pull up the boat there, and he's going to jump overboard in the water and wade ashore. Just like he waded ashore in the face of withering gunfire, say, from uh, from the Japanese. Well, uh, th- it'll start out innocently like that. And of course, you know, did you know that over now in Japan, one of the great uh, movements in Japan now is nostalgia over World War II. Did you hear about that? Well, you're hearing about it first here, and uh, guys are you know sitting around now, guys that were in, in kamikaze squadrons that didn't uh, didn't make that final jump and. Guys that were in the uh, were were based in such fun places as the Burmese jungles, you know, and and uh, the whole you know the whole crowd, you know, the old the old gang that was involved in the Philippine Death March and all, they all get together and they talk about old days and they swap pictures and you know and they they talk about the you know the good old atrocities and stuff and uh, and uh, yeah, well after all let's face it that's what this insanity of war is all about so uh, ultimately it's got to happen there's got to be groups of guys who from 
some Marine Corps rifle company are going to get together with, a, with the remnants of a Japanese rifle company that they faced in Okinawa for eight days on Bloody Ridge or something, and uh, they're going to they're reenact the battles, and they'll just start running up and down the hill, see. But, you know, the thing about these reenactments, I have to be honest with you, it's obviously true, that the people who reenact them aren't the guys that were involved in them, uh, <laughs> quite obviously. Uh, because they don't see it generally as, you know, a fun thing. It's, it's the people that read about the stuff later, and it seems to be such groovy fun. And they're the ones that are going to go and, you know, do all this stuff. But uh, so this is, this is a phenomenon that's hardly ever reported on. I never hear anybody talking much about this. And yet practically every battle, a, a major war, uh, has its uh, group of fanatics who collect equipment from it and, in fact, even the... Uh, will we'll go ahead and, and often reenact situations. World War One is rife with that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of World War One nostalgia around now. Guys travel, to the, you know, they go to the Marne and they go to the Somme and they go to all these places where these great battles occurred, like the Argonne. And uh, they, uh, they, even, uh, they even dress up, guys, guys actors in that dress up like a, a typical British doughboy or, uh, or what, they call them Tommies. Wasn't it Tommies? Typical British Tommy. The doughboy the was the American, right? And, uh, or the Bosch, the Bosch, uh, the Hun. And, uh, you know, a group of guys will, will gather wearing their field gray from the Wehrmacht. And uh, they'll, face the, uh, they'll face the guys in the British Tommies and reenact the, middle of, uh, the Battle of the Somme. Did you ever hear about that? With, with fake lights and with flares and, and uh, yeah, the whole thing. And <laughs> it's kind of weird. But uh, speaking of weirdies, uh, I heard recently, talk about weirdos, uh, strange, uh, strange, people have, people have strange, uh, it's hard to tell what, what the mind is capable of, but recently a, a crew got together, a crew of guys that were in a B-17, and I mean the, the actual crew, and uh, they, uh, they, they finally had a reunion, which you can understand, you know, after all these guys shared a lot of danger together and so on, and they finally located each other. The entire crew had gone through uh, one whole tour of duty, 30 bombing raids over uh, the most dangerous part of Europe in 1943 or 44. I guess it was 44. And they all survived. And they were shipped back after their tour was over. And they were sent to different camps and so on, and they never saw each other again. Well, they recently had a reunion these guys. But where do you think they had it? Very interesting. Well, they didn't have it in the hotel room in New York where they sat around and drank, you know, dropped bottles of water out the window and hollered and, and uh, told dirty stories. But what they did, they, uh, they, they had the reunion at an airfield down in Texas where the, uh, did you ever hear of the, uh, any of you ever hear of the Confederate Air Force? You know anything about the Confederate Air Force? Hi, George. I'm, I'm waiting in the, in the mutual ignorance here tonight. Well, the Confederate Air Force, among flyers, is probably one of the most... It is one of the most famous outfits in the world. And it is a group of people... They just call themselves the Confederate Air Force because it's based in the South. But it, it's a group of people who have purchased uh, from various governments around the world a... Well, it's, it's, it's an unparalleled collection of World War II flying, fighting aircraft. Great historical types. 
uh, ranging all the way from uh, B-24s and B-25s and 26s through uh, P-47s and 51s and P-39s. I bet you can't tell me the name of the P-39. What, what was the name? The, uh, the P-51, of course, was the Mustang, right? The P-47 was the Thunderbolt. All right, I'll ask you one, a lesser-known one. What was the P-39? Now, that's true trivia. What was the P-39? What was its name? What was the P-63? These are getting very rare. How about the P-61? I'll give you that one just to give you a clue that there were some pretty colorful names. The Black Widow was the P-61, the Black Widow. Uh, anyway, they have this great airfield with a, with a tremendous collection of airplanes down there, all flying. These are not uh, museum pieces. Well, there are museum pieces, but they've all been restored in their original markings and all, and uh, they're beautifully uh, beautifully restored, and they, they're all flying. And guys, In fact, a lot of times when you see World War II movies that are contemporarily made, you know, the uh, reenactment of various things in World War II, the aircraft that are used in the flying sequences quite often come from the Confederate Air Force. They Because they, they have some examples of flying airplanes that uh, nobody else in the world has. They have a great collection of them. And uh, it's, a, it's a whole big thing now. Well, these guys are holding their, their, uh, <laughs> their reunion at the airfield where the Confederate Air Force is. These uh, guys that are in this air crew. And, and guess what they're going to do? They're not just going to sit around and talk. Remember, these guys are these guys are experienced B-17 crew. They they put in a lot of hours in B-17s, and the the pilot is still flying. He's not flying B-17s now, but he's flying all kinds of aircraft. The pilot, who was the original pilot on the airplane, and so what they're going to do is that they're going to actually get a B-17 off the ground, and they're going to fly once again as a crew. Waste gunner, radio man, the whole bit. <laughs> You know that's that's wild, and they're gonna they're gonna take off, and they're gonna fly around in this B-17. Now you haven't heard the the best of it, though. You haven't heard the best of it, the most fascinating part of it. That living in the United States, there are a number of experienced. This may surprise you. I happen to know one of them. There are a number of experienced veterans of Hermann Goering's Luftwaffe, who flew such uh, uh, speckled beauties as uh, Heinkel 112s and uh, ME-110s, and uh, ME-109s, and they put in many, many hours. One of them, in fact, has something like 37 confirmed victories, uh, who's living right here in New York, <laughs> and, uh, and he's a famous Luftwaffe pilot. And, uh, of course, he's not uh, doing much uh, strafing these days, but, uh, uh, you know, he keeps his hand in now and again, I imagine. But nevertheless, uh, what they're going to do when they go down there is they're going to fly this B-17 around, and two of these guys with the P, uh, with the uh, ME-109s, these are Messerschmitts, the 109, the famous fighter plane that uh, was the standard uh, fighter plane of the Luftwaffe, these guys are going to make a concerted attack on the B-17. I mean, I mean that's, that's pretty wild, isn't it? And, and uh, of course, they're not going to use real ammunition, but... They're going to fire away there with blanks, and these guys are going to man their old position. And all of them, this is a, one of the odd twists of fate, all of, the, all of the guys still have their flying gear. 
in this crew. By an odd coincidence, all of them have kept their flight jackets and helmets and all that stuff. So these guys are going to be firing away from their waist gunner. You know, uh, here he comes in at 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock low. Coming up, coming up. <laughs> you know, they fire away with the, with the flexible 50s, the guy in the, in the waist and the guy in the ball turret and all. And they're, they're going to fly an actual P-17 and do this. <laughs> and uh, now, you haven't heard the final thing, that there are some guys in this Confederate Air Force who uh, flew uh, the, the uh, flew escort to the very flights that these guys flew originally when they flew over Germany in World War II. They flew escort in P-47s and uh, also some escorts in, in P-51s. So these guys are then going to engage the uh, ME-109s and, and you know, do what they actually did, you see. In other words, uh, there, was an all, there was always in a, in, a, in a flight of P-17s, B-17s rather, when they went over at a tremendous altitude for that period. It was tremendous altitude, way up around 30,000 feet or higher. Uh, above them, laying way up above them, as almost at the limits of the uh, altitude, would be this flight of, of P-51s or uh, P-47s. And, of course, whenever they were attacked by uh, flying aircraft, like, say, like the 109s, these guys would come slanting down and engage them in battle. Well, uh, <laughs> that's what they're going to do. It's a fantastic scene. So uh, I just, you know, I just thought I'd bring this out that, that uh, not only are the British alone in their uh, their kookiness about the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, and uh, it gets very serious. You know, here, here's this old guy getting his head bashed in and ribs broken and all. They're not just out there kidding. There is real hate between the Roundheads, you know, and the Cavaliers to this day. And you know, it could be very interesting if these guys get up and they start uh, they start doing this battle. You know, they start doing this mock battle, and the next thing you know. I mean, you know, the old, after all, man is a creature of habit, and one does not get rid of one's old enmities very easily. And the next thing you know, they're going round and round up there, man, and it could very easily happen. As a matter of fact, because, you know, when you're flying an airplane, that in itself is an exciting thing, and, and uh, the, the, the juices start flowing. Did I tell you that the other day, David Niven is always playing? He even talks like that. Uh, very, very uh, modest and... Oh, actually nothing, just a flesh wound, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, he, he was a, the epitome of the RAF flyer. Who was that, Herb? Who, was the, who do you think is the, the, the living embodiment of the RAF Battle of Britain fighter pilot? That's right, I met him. You're correct, Peter Townsend. And I met him the other day, and uh, we got talking, see, as, as pilots, although I certainly would never in any way, shape, or form even remotely think of myself in that league. But, uh, you know, there is a bond between all flyers. And uh, I said to him, I, you know, I said, gee, I said, uh, you know, I had an opportunity here last year at the EAA to uh, sit at, at the controls of a Spitfire uh, in flying condition, a Spitfire that was and had flown in the Battle of Britain. It's one of the few remaining examples of the aircraft that actually flew in the Battle of Britain. And this one is a beautiful one. I said, I sat in this thing. And he said, oh, bye, George. He said, you know, I said, uh, how long has it been since you've been uh, done any flying? He said, I'll never forget. He said, I went out to uh, Fonsworth, uh, <laughs> which is their air station. You know, the, the, it's like the British right field. He said, went to Fonsworth. And he was there for some kind of ceremony. And they, they put him into a, a spit. 
a Spitfire. Also, he said he, he was in a hurricane, too. He flew hurricanes, I guess, at one time. So, anyway, he says he got in this... I can't tell, remember now whether it was a hurricane or a Spitfire, but he got in the aircraft, and it was a flying model, of course, and uh, he got it started up, and he said that prop spinning up there, and he could feel it vibrating, and he started to taxi it around the field. And he said it was all he could do to control himself. He said, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was just... He said, physically, I had to literally control myself. He said, because the, the urge to, to pour the coal to this thing and go roaring down that runway and lift her off and bring those wheels up and do a, you know, do a slow barrel roll over the field, he said, it was so much that I could hardly control myself. And uh, you could see his eyes just shining. I said, well, well uh, <laughs> I said, do you, do you ever really, uh, you know, get the urge to get out and fly? Oh, he said, all the time. He said, some days I... He said, some days I, I can, I can uh, you know, he said, I can almost taste it. And I, and I asked him about the Battle of Britain, you know. I said, uh, do you remember those? Oh, he said, listen, he said, I remember every instant of it. He said, it was so so in, uh, involved in my my consciousness at the time, and I was so totally, you know, in battle in, in the air. You're so totally committed. He said that I don't think I, I can even forget a minute of my flight log. And I said, well, what about your flight log? You have it. Oh, yes. He, he has his flight log, Herb. And uh, for those of you who don't know what a flight log is, that every moment that a flyer flies, whether it's dual instruction or whatever it might be, is logged in an official notebook, a log book. The hour, the time, the type of aircraft, the length the flight was, what kind of a flight was it across country. And he said, yes, he has his log book. And he says, once in a great while, he said, uh, when he meets old friends and they get talking, he'll take out his log book. And he'll talk about specific days, specific moments over the channel when this flight of 110s came in at the 12 o'clock high, you know. And he, uh, he talks about uh, getting pranged. He says, I'll never forget. You know that he was the first, one of the first aircraft ever shot down in the Battle of Britain? Yes. He was shot down in his first combat, I believe. And he said he'll never forget that. <laughs> With the glycol streaming out of the side of the airplane. And he felt that... He felt that thing beginning to shudder, and he could see the heat rising in the plane, and he knew that she was done. And he went over the side and rolled out over the wing into that fantastic slipstream. And he says the 109 circled around him twice. The guy that had shot him down, and he figured he was going to get it as he drifted down in this parachute. He said that the guy scudded away on the deck and left him. He said, I often would like to meet him again. Talk to him. Ask him, you know, how come he didn't give it to me at that last instant? So everywhere you go, that strange thing is going on. Guys running around in Confederate uniforms. The roundheads are fighting the Cavaliers. Over the skies of Texas, a B-17 is being attacked by 109s. Someplace, somebody is storming a bastion, pretending that he was at the Battle of El Alamein, probably. <laughs> oh, man. The nuttiness continues. <laughs>